0: Can you hear me? Ah, oh, you can hear me too much. How is it now? Better. Okay. So good morning, everybody. Again, sorry for the delay. I came with. And um, how are the reading goings going? Good. in terms of pace. Uh, 30, 25 to 30 pages a day. Fair enough. Okay. Now we. I wanted to start off telling you a couple of communications. About the class in general. So first of all, we are using so far eCampus, the eCampus website. Do you all have access to the eCampus website? Some, anybody of yours doesn't. All right, good. Because we're going to quit it and go to Moodle. You know what Moodle is? C C, you know Here we go. Now Moodle, also known as C L E E community or communicative learning environment or something, uh, this is a system that uh, will substitute, will uh, over, will take the place of uh, eCampus, which is basically the same thing. It's a way for the instructors to build up Classes, uh, class, class websites where I can upload the materials and also advance the tools that I'm not going to use, like in terms of uh, registering my voice and broadcasting it because we have it already somewhere else, or quizzes online, etc. It's just a tool for teaching. Um, Have you ever used the Moodle so far? Do you have any clue how to get there? You did. Mm-hmm. And that's your
1: username from password to your student
0: ID number. Okay, well, great because I can access it with my uh, Bruin online account, so my normal account. So you log in with your Bruin account normally? No. Uh, no,
1: because you have to, because I don't know how they will do it for like a humanities class.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: I mean, but like we had to log in, like they gave us a, when we logged in at first, they gave us a five digit
0: number. How did you log in first?
1: Uh, just by signing up.
0: Okay, and then they gave you a number.
1: Yeah, then they asked for our name and ID number, and then they gave us a 5
0: digit number. Okay, so you gave your uh, student ID number <laughs> first. and you gave, So, more or less, I think that so, whatever you need to access it, you already must have it, because it's a tool made for the students to work out of the box. So either it works like, what's your name? Satisha. Satisha, sorry, I won't remember the name of everybody, but I'll try. So Satisha, thank you. Um, As it works for for Satisha, you are ready to do it. You have your ID number, your student ID number, you log in with that, you get a temporary number. I suspect that that was a sort of um, um, experimental phase of the project. Because it has come into effect this quarter fully, especially for the humanities. Well, uh, another way you could log in, I think, is through your Bruin Online account now, or using your ID. Now the thi- it works as follows: You go to my UCLA, your my UCLA webpage, your normal one. When you have the list of the classes, you follow me so far. I mean, I assume that you follow me. I don't assume that I know how it works for students because I wasn't a student UCLA. I guess you have the list of the classes as I do. You click on the name of the class, and you are you are redirected to you, to the webpage of the class. Have you is is this the way you access eCampus campus normally? Okay, now when you click in, in the future, and I don't know when, I asked uh, to switch to Moodle, I don't know how long it will take for technical reasons, when they will switch us to Moodle, you click there and you just get to Moodle instead of Campus, it's just automatically. When you get there, well, let's see how it works. I, I will ask though, but I think that you should uh, log in uh, with your own uh, Online account or with your student ID number. Okay. I will uh, keep you updated when we actually sh- switch there. I already updated. I already uploaded in the campus website the readings for today. Have you gotten them? Downloaded them? They were upside down. Do I send too many emails? <laughs> like 11 p.m., 11:30? 11 <laughs> okay. Um, all right. You can turn them around, etc. So no problems with the readings today from for technical reasons, as I see. If you had them, just tell me. We'll work it out differently. Another important question, number two on my list today, is how many of yours don't have access to Bruin Online or eCampus in terms of being uh, extension students? You know, UCLA Extension. Nobody? Okay, very good. Because normally I have. Had so far smaller classes, and there there has always been at least a couple of students being extension students. Not here. Okay, it works. If you see, if you feel that I send somebody something to the class that you don't reach, please, and you understand it from your colleagues, etc. Just tell me now because it's very important that we have this sort of uh, electronic contact because I use it a lot. Okay, and you can miss materials that can be useful. Okay, now, next week we'll have a pop-up quiz, I guess. Okay, it's not pop-up because I'm telling you. I don't know whether <laughs> it's going to be Monday or Wednesday, but a short one that won't take very much of the class, just to make sure everybody has made the readings, to say it all. Um, in terms of a more lively and maybe effective exchange, I truly believe in this thing of the summar- summarization that today you wanted to do. What's your name? Amanda, Amanda. you told me already. Okay, Okay. How I work on this? Please, uh, would you come here? There you You. I don't know what Okay.
1: All right. Um, so basically, you guys probably realized already that this was largely repeated material from what we learned the last time that we read. But that's okay. We're going to go over it anyway. So basically, you guys know that the games originated as religious festivals and they had a dual purpose. The first one was to call upon divine support for prosperity or protection of the city. The second was to offer an opportunity for the masses to participate in something to do with the city. There's a standard format. There's a procession, there's games, and a sacrifice. So part one is the procession. It has two purposes as well. One is a practical or logistical aspect. Basically, you have to get to where you're going to do the rest of it, and so you just walk, basically. But the second part is ritualistic, so there's like a certain arrangement, there's adornment of the animals, of the people, there's chanting and various ways that you walk and so on, and that's to set this apart from a normal time that you're walking somewhere. So part two would be the sacrifice, which is the basic act of worship for Greeks and Romans, which establishes positive relations between the gods and men through this gift that the the men offer to the gods. There are three types of gifts that they might use. One is immolation of an animal. Two is a libation of either wine or oil. And three is the offering of cakes or flowers or other little goodies like that on the altar. So for immolation, the animal would be dressed or marked as, setting, as being set apart for common. So it would have like a wreath or it would have something else looking pretty or a saddle or something I don't know. And the second and then it would also have when it goes up to get slaughtered, it would have to indicate its agreement and they, I guess saw that as if the animal would nod its head slightly indicating that it was ready to be immolated. So I, I know that that's something that's always interested me. Um, all sacrifices were accompanied by a prayer, which had um, a declaration of specific need or a thank you for some sort of achievement or accomplishment that God had already made to the people. And then there was the part three, which is the games, and that's what we're most familiar with, probably. And that's the most elaborate of the three parts, where um, it was an offering of human achievement to a deity. You could sort of see it that way. By all uh, means. Uh, no, doesn't matter. The Romans were
0: willing to go to sacrifice, why is it so important, why is everything so <coughs> ritualistically arranged? Our modern religions tend to be more religions of the soul and of the spirits in a sort of mystic way, but the most archaic religions are very formalized ones, where the way you ritualize things is so important, and they used to, they used to consider this thing, which is a neuter of the third declension, omen, ominis, for those of yours who have taken Latin one or something like that. Um, means a sign, a sign of uh, the divinity which happens casually, but actually (laughs) (laughs) well it could be me too I I just reached the bottom it means that if something happens completely random that gives a bad sign it's a a sign of the divinity in English you have the word ominous if if I'm not wrong, the adjective ominous meaning having a bad sign so the whole thing about the whole ancient religions and, and modern religion studies, basically, have to do with this assumption that the deeds, the rites that you perform, come from a very archaic and mean something, um, having to do originally with practical purposes, but then being symbolized. Meaning what? Okay, the procession. The procession is just going there because you have to go all together in order to meet all together. How about the sacrifice? Have you noticed that all sacrifices are followed by banquets, most often? Because in ancient rural societies, you don't have meat to eat all the time, and especially you don't have freezers. and so when you kill a beast, you want to eat it all together because after two days it's going to stink. And it's also the reason why the goulash is so spicy, because you have to put spices in there because it just stinks after a couple of days. So you, it's the <laughs> only way you can possibly eat the stuff, meat, brought to the meat, after a couple of days. So, the origin of it all is practical. You want to go there all together, because it's not it's not cool that the sac- the, the priest sacrifices alo- alo- along with a couple of people and the people arriving delay, but also it's ritualized later. And also the sacrifice itself is just a way to offer some parts of the body of the beast to the divinity, and to eat all the rest, basically, the muscles. So, um... When we, when we study those things, it can sound weird. It's just trying to ask ourselves what's the inner meaning of it all. What, uh, this is largely repeated, that's true. But I find that this book has two more things, in my opinion. One, some more reflection about things. Not just information, which is complete, is good, but it's also complete in, in Gladiators and Caesars, but some reflection more, As these discussions about rituals, etc. And, so and second, the sources, of course. OK, just wanted to talk about this. Question on um. that. Yeah.
1: I had read somewhere that part of the reason they wear a certain kind of cloak was to block their eyes out I'm seeing like, a, did they play, was there someone playing music as well to, to protect
0: from bad sound? Yes. Or oh, yeah. that pre-standard? Definitely, definitely. It's formal religions where the act that you are doing is more important than the spirit, how you're doing it, in a way. Only in all those religions, there are such uh, practical... Uh, practical uh, Devices. That's true, that's perfectly true. And you you have an expensive thing that when you get married you have to raise the s- the bride up your yeah. arms?
1: Carrying over the threshold.
0: Because she why? it's to a Roman thing originally. It's in Catullus sixty eight. Why? Is it to
1: change the house from being like their house like his house to their house together and sort of symbolically bring her over into his lifetime so he's in her, in her, his control as opposed to the parents?
0: Well that's that's the reason why they go together. That's the reason why there is this procession. You're going there, you're not looking back there are many arms. About what's your name? Bobby.
1: Yes, Does she can, so can really
0: th- Which woman could if she, she trips, the meaning of the verb you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're perfectly right. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to study English more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's the reason in the Roman in the Roman times. If you, okay, if you trip on the threshold, it's a bad sign. In order for you not to do it, the best. Okay. thank you. Cool. Okay.
1: Alright, um, so basically then, with state sponsorship, opportunity to celebrate the gods intertwined with the opportunity to showcase wealth and power of the state and the leadership. And so the games usually include athletic and musical aspects. And there were lots of messages besides just the pious worship of a divinity. So we should take it with a grain of salt, basically. Um, The beginning of the games were the Ludi Magni and the Ludi Romani in honor of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. And initially these were votive games, and votives basically mean that they're vowed in honor of something that is yet to come so this would be like Jupiter Optimus Maximus if you allow us this great victory I will give you this this and that so the connection to victory was always really important with votive games and it was also a public relations move if you think about it this is enabled conquering uh, conquerors to appear pious and dutiful to to the state and also generous to fellow citizens so that's pretty much the purpose of that Um, chariot racing racing is also associated with the Louis Romani and with Rome as a whole In 366 B.C. it became a yearly function that was organized by the Aediles? Is that how you say it? I I,
0: don't know in English. Oh, I don't either. Aediles, okay.
1: Uh, Organized by the Aediles, who began to use them as political tools. Particularly in the late 3rd and early 2nd century, there was um, an explosion of games because of an increase in wealth, increased senatorial powers, and the influence of other cultures, primarily the Hellenistic kings. Yes. Oh, dang it. Yes. All right, um, okay. I have to slow down.
0: Okay. Well, I cannot say everything, but I assume I understand. No, it's me, actually. It really is. I promise. I speak faster than
1: So, ordinary games were controlled by the state originally, but top private citizens paid for the enormous spectacles. Gladiators were originally part of funeral games, demonstrations called Munera, and they're considered to be an, among a number of Etruscan imports, including the toga and the fasces. Fasces, yes. Well, let's
0: talk about pronunciation. Yes. I, it, it's, a, it's an issue being me and Italian, etc. I will pronou- try to pronounce the ancient names, me myself, with a classical pronunciation, if it's okay for you. Because I think that using the Italian one doesn't make sense, the English one I have to make it up. <laughs> so it won't always work. The the ancient classical pronunciation, we can't go over it right now, but just to be... If you know any Spanish, any Italian, it's pretty... it's close enough. You pronounce the vowel as it is. Any single vowel, any single consonant. And the C and the G are always hard. It's always K and G. So Caesar is Kaisar. For those of you, I would use that word. K-E-S-A-Kaisar, the way it's read whatever you want, okay? Just
1: So, would it be right. like fasces then?
0: In that case, it would be it would be fas. The C is always hard, so fasces. Fasces, okay. Or sorry. Fasces, if you say in English, English, what do you think? Fasces. Fasces. Oh, okay. Case. The English,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is hurting some people that speak Latin, though, so I'm sorry for all my mispronunciations. I'm not trying to. So All right. Excellent. So there are also two paintings from Campania that show some basis for um, gladiatorial um, ceremonies as well. There are a couple of objections to gladiators, um, one of which is that it was an excess luxury, and it wasn't actually a demonstration of skill. Another was this feud with Capua, which is where most of the schools were located for gladiatorial um, men. And the reason why is that Capua shifted its alliance to Hannibal, and Rome was betrayed during the clash between Rome and Hannibal. And apparently they never let it go. So historically, Rome is very hostile to Capua. There were also Christian objections, and you can probably imagine what they are. It didn't go into great detail, but it's not hard to think about why. Um, The purpose of gladiatorial show was for death. There's blood reconciliation, because the spirit benefits from the bloodshed, and so on. There's also a testament to the importance of the lost one, that all these people died to celebrate this person who died. And it boosts the reputation of the family's power and their wealth. Also, such shows are good in times of crisis to distract the people and, and form a sense of solidarity that they can overcome things that are scary. Um, and it's, it's a good way to bolster the spirits of the living while honoring the people who have died. So why gladiators? Um, because they, it engages supernatural support, because remember, primarily it's still supposedly religious, and so the gladiators would be uh, almost a dedication of athletic ability to a god who primarily is protecting you or else is, is, you know, sort of helping the spirit of the dead. The second thing is that it demonstrates the capability of the government, even in crisis, to persevere, to present, to, to nurture its people, to show good things to them and it also showcased Roman virtues which is like the manly values of Rome and um, it also is seen as uniquely Roman as we talked about like yesterday chariot racing and and music and other athletics had sort of a Greek connotation whereas the the gladiators were almost particularly a Roman thing except for technically it's Etruscan but we won't talk about that because it's technically sort of supposed to be Roman and it also was supposed to have a moral value but I couldn't figure out what it was and I challenge you guys all to figure out what it is too Okay. Um, Animal shows were exotic, it was an exotic explosion as Romans conquered other cultures, they brought in elephants and other bizarre creatures and they were displayed originally as living war booty and they didn't do anything with them, they just sort of paraded them around. But then someone got the idea, well, what if we harness these big beasts and make them work for us? So what they did, for example with elephants, is they were fearsome on the battlefield, they're really big, they're kind of intimidating, and usually they're used to crush down the Roman armies. So the Roman people had the idea, they could take all this imperial meaning, this symbolism, and harness it to have the elephants work for them. So they had the elephants trample political prisoners, because it's kind of like, well, we're Romans and we've harnessed this giant elephant and it is obeying the will of the people. Which is kind of a neat thing if you think about it. And so the inclusion of animals led to the executions involving trampling, etc., in a great arena. And this shows the animal carrying out the will of the Roman people, presumably. This was also a significant deterrent. Um, Deterrent against people who would dissent from the Roman army as well, so it had sort of a, a, sort of, logical practice as well, and it makes a remarkable spectacle, or so it was said. So then there was also a spectacle they transported overseas, and they had the, the reason they sort of tried to export this spectacle is for a couple of reasons. It demonstrated a capacity beyond just the military when It's like, okay, look, we've got culture too, and they was they used the politically charged techniques of the Hellenistic kings to sort of ally themselves and say, hey, you know, we're kind of like Hellenistic kings, so watch out for us. And they also would, um, they would, it wasn't limited to slaves, as they expanded people that were military leaders went out there to try to show their supremacy on the, on the field of, of athletics and, and uh, spectacles and so on. So rich people started getting involved, like chieftains and, and conquerors and so on, and that made it very different from when it was originally just a slave enterprise. Am I going too fast? It's too late, isn't it? It's done. I'm sorry. I'm still excited, that's all. Um, Alright, so after Macedonia was conquered in 168 BC, the Romans strove to put on a show of Roman culture and sophistication, and mastery of Greek symbols of power. They didn't want to seem like only bloodthirsty fighters. So the conquering general Paulus, Paulus supposedly said that a man who knows how to conquer in war was also a man who would know how to arrange a banquet and organize a show. This according to Livy. The gladiatorial trend spread, spread to other cultures, particularly the Syrian one, who began to adopt these power things just the same way the Greeks did, that the Romans did from the Greeks. And so the Syrians allied themselves with Rome to project this military image that they liked. So then there's another chapter, sort of, about spectacle and Roman politics, which is what this is all about.
0: That's exhausting. exhausting. <laughs> but I would like to talk later about the Christian objections. Mm-hmm. There are. Are there Christian objections or not? Like the points you would like to expand on later. It's just that's like I'm doing now. Okay, I already had a couple. I want to expand on it. But if you do the same, we're right, the same, okay? And they uh, were originally religious. religious they had a religious meaning. So we shouldn't ever forget it, because she said. But did the Romans forget it? This is my question. When you're performing something that is originally religious, are you still remembering the religious value of it? Well, I think of Christmas, personally. But I even more think of the patron saint of the city where I lived for years, which is Palermo, where there is this Santa Rosalia, Saint Rosalia. Saint Rosalia, it's weird. Santa Rosalia, Saint Rosalia. And this... Saint uh, was originally a saint who had healed Palermo from a big
1: epidemic
0: in the 1600s, I guess. And now it's a religious fest, right? But I guess that nobody in Palermo goes to the mass for it, but they just go to this huge procession and they have this all sort of uh, feasts and spectacles around, and there's nothing religious about it. Now, after 400 years, we still remember that it's a religious feast, in a way. But is everything which is done there reconductible to a religious origin or not? This could be a reflection about uh, social space and religious symbologies and uh, social ceremonies and religious symbology that I would like to put on the table if somebody is ever interested. Um, animals and maps. There's something quite interesting going on in the first century BC in the first century B- BC, Rome not only acquires a large empire in the Mediterranean and establishes its power over there, but above all, establishes its power also symbolically. Realizes, the Roman culture realizes that Rome is no city-state anymore, but it's basically an empire. And many things happen, many changes happen at any level. At a political level, at a social level, at an economical level. Uh, We have talked about the passage from Republic to the so-called Empire, or Principatus at the beginning, but obviously also from a social point of view, new social classes take advantage of that. But from a cultural point of view, there are many manifestations of symbolical um, establishment of a new image of Rome. Rome creates a new epic, a new um, celebrative literature with Virgil and with other authors. Uh, big historians come along writing down the whole history of Rome. Virgil is no historian, but as you know, the Enid Enid, speaks about the history of Rome and creates gives a meaning to the history of Rome, which is even more important. Livy is an author of this time, the big historian of Rome. Um, And also some geographers (laughs) build up, so write basically, works about the cosmology of of Rome, and also the Hellenistic... Science in terms of maps is important into is imported into Rome. And also I would add big public libraries are founded in Rome. I pull all those things together, I put all those things, to, things together as a sort of symbolic appropriation, appropriation is English word, mm-hmm. of Rome. Of, of the world by Rome. We build up maps which are publicly displayed in Rome to say here is the word. We dis- we know it. We describe it in geographical words. Um, we, so we own it, also symbolically. In Latin poetry of the first century before Christ, there are lines and lines of the most boring nature, where they just make a list of of uh, cities, rivers, mountains, or exotic places that Rome has conquered. What's the thing, what's the meaning of these erudite lines, which doesn't don't give anything to the poetic inspira- inspiration and don't add anything to the narrative, if it's a narrative poem? What's the meaning, according to you, of representing the whole world in Rome? Just to possess it symbolically. And uh, uh, the maps and the animals, the displaying of animals over there, the displaying of uh, physical... Well, a triumph. What's a triumph originally?
1: when they come back from conquering something and they parade in with with ivy or whatever laurel and they've got elephants and bangles and people screaming and cheering for the person that conquered exactly
0: exactly. so that's a parade a parade so a show and it's a very spectacular thing and in most uh, modern religious ceremonies in the western world you have parades as well which are supposed to be spectacular and you have the u.s.c. btc parade as well (laughs) where the UCLA is represented and represents itself. The triumph is a self-representation of Rome, of the triumphant general, where symbolic tokens of the victory are represented. The captives, the slaves, the the, the prisoners, the conquered kings, which are in chain, but they must be marked up as kings. They must have tokens, signs, to make understand that it's a powerful guy that we conquered. And animals and uh, um, arms, the specific arms, the exotic arms of dark people. They are exotic exhibitions of the rest of the world. And so I, I, this is the reflection I want to do about this. And they were trying to export it. I would like to discuss later if you are interested about are they actually trying to export those spectacles or there's also somebody who's trying to imitate them in terms of Antiochus IV. Remember Antiochus IV of Syria? What did Antiochus do? The he the
1: just basi- he basically just tried to do the same thing they were doing o- on the same scale, which is why he was appropriating Roman culture, which they took from the Greeks. So.
0: Exactly true. So there is a sort of intermingling process of appropriation and imitation. Um, then we'll talk about it later. If you want, okay. Those mm-hmm. Go ahead.
1: Excellent. Um, okay, so basically, spectacle in Roman politics in the late Republic, gladiatorial matches were in with other public entertainments, and. They were still a political f- to tool for voters, and they enhanced the image of people as public benefactors. And the funerary connection became a very loose association by that point. The innovation in spectacle was the only distinguishing factor you really had to rely on because there were so many spectacles that your job was just to get the biggest gladiators and the, and the largest elephants and the most trampling to death. So, Julius Caesar and the Edel? edel? Yeah, no? Thank you. The Edile in, uh, in 65 BC was good at this. He mounted a public exhibition for public of special items, like what he was just talking about—the the armor and the things that he took from other lands—and he let people touch it and see it and, and actually get close to it, which is nice. And that really made him popular. Pompey was the first to build a permanent venue in Rome designed for spectacles, but Cicero seemed underwhelmed by his debut. He said, "I need not give you further details. You know the other shows." So the cost of a the spectacle—they were pretty exorbitant. A political career required large amounts of cash and elites went into debt to acquire political power. Republican notables offered the Munera, the funeral games, freely, but not out of a technical obligation. Some tried to impose limits on spending. Cicero was one of these proponents, and he was miserably ineffective on that part, in my opinion, because he says that um, the presentation of games distracts politicians from the real purpose of what they were doing for the people of Rome. Other elites would, would choose to try to like, make other elites not have money for it because they wanted to have the best ones themselves. So There was lots of backstabbing when you tried to make a rule. It was actually just to make yourself be most on top for the biggest and best spectacle, not because you actually felt a compunction to stop the games. And the opposition was that cheap spending, should, that, that you should be spending programs for, you know, acquiring property or elections or things that benefit the people beyond a cheap bribery. So the control. The control of it is basically because you need, to woo, you need to woo the majority of people while you're minimizing your opponent's chance to do so. I'm almost done. I promise.
0: Okay. When I gave my first papers in conferences, my advisor would be there and literally... Okay. Okay. That was great. But you're I will do my
1: best. I'm sorry. So the Senate tried to gain control by limiting funding, controlling the timing of these events, and limiting the scale. For example, they would refuse to grant a great triumph to somebody who thought they deserved it. So the games were held in exchange of victory, held by the general who made a vow, which led on a tax for the conquered people. And we talked about that yesterday, or three days ago, two days ago, where it would be, you would need this great celebration, so you would go tax the people that you just whooped, because you can do that. Well, they tried to stop them from doing that, and so you had to have a, a scale of how much you could tax the people or if you could at all. And eventually they got to the point where the, um, who are they? the generals had to pay for tramps with their own personal funds as opposed to funds that they milked from other people. I don't know how effective that was, but that was the idea. The Lex Calpurnia was designed to disallow a form of bribe- bribery, which is a question about giving preferential seating to really high up people in a stadium or whatnot. And, the, and Cicero's Lex Tullia declared that politicians were not allowed to have gladiatorial debates, races, whatever, for two years before or after getting elected positions, so they didn't influence the vote one way or the other. Unless technically a Munera was specified in the will of someone who had recently died. So there was also a danger of gladiators themselves in these politically turbulent times, so they wanted to minimize the number of gladiators in any place at one time, particularly within the bounds of the Roman city. The gladiators traveled in packs called familias, or familie, I guess, and once the games were over, the survivors were either sold to another politician, or they were taken on as, like, thug bodyguards for the person that had, sold, that had started the games. So the restriction of gla- there was a restriction on the number of gladiators that you could possess in the Roman city at any time, because, I guess, of a lingering fear of Spartacus, and that was the big revolt where the gladiators came, and it was fairly successful, I get the impression. Some politicians <coughs> invested in gladiatorial training schools, that's along the lines of Caesar and other ones that were really high profile, when there was a possible question of whether or not he was actually forming the school so he would have ready-to-go troops in the event of civil war. And there was a fear that the gladiators in that condition would take advantage of the upheaval to run away or wreak havoc in some way that wasn't directly for the city of Rome's needs. So shows finally were used as a political assembly, which we talked about a little bit, in terms of the crowd would boo or they would cheer or they would hiss, depending on like who was up and what was being talked about, and this was the only large-scale time where all the Roman people would get together, even even the like the huddled masses, because otherwise it was mostly the elite senate and so on for a long time making decisions, and then obviously it was the emperor. But,
0: um, we'll talk about it in a Okay. Because there used to be public assemblies, and obviously they were there okay, they were abolished very interesting for topic to talk about okay.
1: later. Um, so basically it was the representative assembly of Romans for some period of time after I guess they abolished the official ones. And so applause or hissing declared a, p- a political stance, the possibility of chance would, would indicate the feeling of the people. And some politicians said that's not a really good indication, you guys can't just take a boo or a hiss as a great sign. But Cicero argued that you could, and he references the crowd's reception of Brutus in the, in the, in the like, struggle between him and Mark Antony after Caesar's assassination. He said, well, the crowd loves Brutus, obviously the crowd approves of what Brutus did. So it's interesting how, how much a, a proof in law court this became, this, this sort of public opinion in the courts. And the efforts to, play, to sway public opinion were so noticeable that there were cash payoffs under Augustus for, like, you know, if you vote my way or if you boo or hiss my way, I will I will give you money. And so, in, interestingly enough, the games became a way of persuasion and to articulate the values or the things that were important to the Roman people at the time. That's everything.
0: Thank you very much. Yes, it was very complete and thorough, And... Uh, Yes, too, too. I, I like both of them. I can see they're not making any rank. Good, so um, I've been writing down some points. Well, I had already a couple of points I wanted to expand on, and a couple that came up to my mind. Um, I can't do this. Okay, here we go. Now, first, uh, tax or, pri- or private funds, uh, which reminds us of the, of the issue about public and private in Rome, in the Republic. And also ready-to-go tropes. Well... They were not ready to go troops because they were too little. They were over specialized and very good at battling, at fighting, but they were too little. When they could be, where they could be effectively deployed to exercise violence in an effective way, according to you? Not on a large scale battle? Assassination? Good, assassination is so direct, yeah. Um, in terms of killing one person but rather than killing one person I would say like ninjas you know we have or 007 not really mob Mob of the city City which in which cases they were actually used there's this example in the first century before Christ who's the guy who had these tubs Milo and before Milo Claudius exactly the two guys that were battling for the conservative, or optimates, party, and for uh, this was Milo, and for the populares, meaning the people party, so to speak, democratic party, but the ancient cat- uh, political categories don't coincide with our ones. Let's say the nobles and the common people, so to speak, but it's even more complex than so. Okay, Claudius was for the common people, whereas Milo was for the optimates, so the nobles, and they made use of these uh, of these uh, troops, uh, of these thumbs in a period which is the, the most, one of the most turbulent periods of history, political history of Rome, which is after the first triumvirate, ma- namely after 60 BC, so in the 50s, in the period where there's this famous struggle between Caesar and Pompey. Um, the armed, armed arm, as we say, of, uh, uh, you understand what I say in this term? So the long, longa manus, the armed uh, Uh, helper, so to speak uh, of of Pompey was uh, Milo and uh, the one of Caesar was Claudius and they made use of of gladiators this takes us to another issue the city of Rome which is connected with the public and private the city of Rome has always been officially a city-state do you know whether there are city-states today? you know which ones? one is where I come from I'm not sure about that. Uh, sorry. Yeah. One is the Vatican. I'm not Roman, but one is the Vatican. The other one I discovered uh, is uh, Singapore. Apparently, apparently Singapore is officially city-state. Why do, don't we have city-states today? Why don't we have city-states today? I'm asking you, just to yeah, to participate. Yes, we have uh, two large and complex states. Well, Rome was a large enough state; it was even an empire, but it never came. It never went over this. Uh, so, what I see as a sort of anomaly: so being officially a, a city state that has to cope with the enormous Empire. Now, this obviously can be overridden in a simple way. You officially state that the whole empire is just named Roma. There's no name for the Roman Empire other than Roma, no? and Roma is also the name of the city. You officially state that it's a city-state, that's uh, just an expansion of Rome, but then you actually um, put into being a complex system of provinces, of governors, of a a complex bureaucracy, uh, so you can cope with it. And that's what they did. But one of the big backsides of being a city-state, of being a strongly centralized society, is what? That has to do with these thugs, these gladiators performing violence. What are the back sides of having everything centralized in one big city that is the center of the power in every for everything? How the control of yeah that that strangely enough has never been a big issue for Rome until the until I would say the late first century before after Christ when you had to decide what the emperor was and then the. The armies that were in the provinces were fighting with each other because every army of the province was proposing an emperor. And then Vespasian came out being, being, having the help of a part of the army. Okay. And then in the late antiquity. but Well, this could be one. But another one is that the center of Rome is crucial and whatever happened in that s- happens in that city is crucial to the balance of the empire. How did Clou- Claudius become an emperor? Claudius. That was nearer.: the? The, the Praetorian Guard. What is the Praetorian Guard? It's a small elite uh, corpse, part of the army officially, being in Rome. So what that, what the tra- point that I'm trying to do is that having all the power in one city, concentrated in one person, or just in one city, also in the Republic, means that whatever happens in that city, and whoever is present in that city has the control over public violence, has enormous power, and that's how these bodyguards, because the Praetorians. Are, yes, go ahead. Um,
1: wasn't there like a unofficial like wall around, not like physical wall? Praetorium. But
0: the like pra- you weren't allowed to cross sorry. it. With, like the Pomerium. Pom- pom- yeah, pom- yeah, the <laughs> <laughs> yes, there was the pom- <laughs> Pomerium. Sorry, I was talking about the Praetorians. I got confused. The Pomerium was, a, a, yes, a symbolic wall, actually a symbolic boundary within which you couldn't carry arms, and that's crucial because of the reason. But then there are ways to. To, to override this. First of all, in these years, the fifth, just to go with order, so the use of violence, the control of violence within the city, in a city-state, which is so crucial. In the, in the 50s, it wasn't allowed to carry arms as a soldier in Rome, but gladiators were around. As I'm saying, gladiators are a way in which the Roman society uses violence and perf- violence and performs violence. But this is risky. This is like having a laboratory where you, where you use uh, germs for a bacteriological war and you are coping with these germs, you using them, but the risk is that the germs, as in many movies happen, just come out and explode and get dispersed in the sewers and people get infected, okay? Pretty much, some issues about the gladiators that are interesting to me is what happened in the 50s. So these gladiators are around, they're under the control of the politicians, they can be in Rome, and they are in Rome, and they are armed, so they can be easily used as bands, as gangs, Gangs of New York, to perform a, a, a use of the public violence, which is very, very um, dangerous to the states. Another problem was the, with the Praetorians, later in the first century AD, when these armed corps of bodyguards of the emperor, basically, get so much power and get out of control, and they decide who the next emperor has to be. This is an issue that is interesting to me. Please, James. Well, I
1: was actually ask, was, was that the
0: Pretty much, they were also a uh, selected uh, corpse, for sure. And yes, that's. Be- and there was a guy who was the praefectus praetori, meaning the guy who has praefectus, coming from the verb facio to do. So the one who was uh, in charge of uh, the praetori of the praetorium, so of this corpse, basically. Who was in control of them and got very much power under the Julio Claudian dynasty and was the person who was controlling them. But the issue I wanted to deal with was backwards the gladiators. Now the gladi, as I was saying the first day when I guess Amanda was asking me why the emperor doesn't fight, who fights? I said no way. I mean a free man cannot fight. This is a sort of dramatized. Um, Violence. From my point of view, it's more or less like we l- when we look at it in the screen. Why are we not morally affected, and why the Christians weren't not affected uh, out of our, our sources by the violence performed in the arena, according to you? How can you not be scandalized by the fact that you go watch a movie and there's somebody who's killing brutally somebody else? Just think of this issue. It's fake. There's a symbolic screen, in the meanwhile. It's another word. It's another set. It's separated from us, from the screen. How did the Romans cope with the violence in the arena, from this point of view? So,
1: I mean, I don't want to say they the but it kind of
0: on the class. I suggest this too. I think there are two different things. One is the deserved it w- if they were criminals or they were like actors. Please your, uh, by your name so I can sort of recall it. Nadia? I A in the end. Yeah. Nadia, okay. Y A in the end. Nadia, okay, thank you. Uh, my Kevin. Kevin. you too. Probably similar to Mm-hmm. And and They got used to it, yeah. I, I, find it, it, I found this passage interesting too. They had to get used to violence, little by little. Uh, but at a certain point, you'd cope with violence as though it was something fake, something performed, something unreal. And uh, I found it very interesting as well, because in the moment when you conceive that it can be unreal, when you build it symbolically, you can deal with it in a very tranquil way, although it's real. I have a couple of examples in mind. Um, we all have, I, I think, have seen shows in the television where some, vi- some death or violence is real. Have you seen it? No, of course you didn't. Because you don't conceive it symbolically. But I guess you did. How about uh, the one where, where they perform the uh, incidents? People dying, basically. coming uh, s- Spectacular car incidents or explosions. Real TV or something. What's it called? Stunts? No, no. Stunts are Reality actors. TV. Reality TV. Exactly. Reality TV. If you sort of... S- or war. Do you remember the war of the Gulf? The first Gulf War? Or are you are so young? If you're young enough, too young to know it, I will cry. Because when I used to, t- to teach high school and I realized that my students weren't born when the first Gulf, Gulf War had broke out, I was very sad. But you remember it. 1992. Tell me yes. Yes, 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 we do. You're not too old. Sure. Okay, one debate that was going on in that in that case where people were actually dying and those bombs so spectacular and green in the sky were actually real bombs was there was a large debate about performing violence, war, uh, and death in the television and creating an, um, um what's it called a fiction-like effect. Fiction imitates reality, but sometimes reality goes into fiction and is conceived as fiction. The spectra- spectaculari- spectacularization of the news. I mean, the American news, compared to the Italian ones, it's look like show. It's called infotainment, info-entertainment. And now this blurs the the, the, the age between reality and uh, representation, reality and fiction. And this is another reflection uh, that I take out of, this, of these readings and of these things. Please. No, man, I'm so sorry. Okay. Think of it. I have a question
1: on... on uh, when they're bringing the animals and the elephants, did, was there ever incidents of attacking the crowds and spectators?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Was that,
0: uh, and they were... That was another thing that I was going to add. They were scandalized by a couple of things. Do you remember what points of scandal we've read in the readings? One was that. I mean, how could you possibly put into the arena violence that you can't control? And another one is when Cicero, say, Cicero says that the gladiators attacked, could attack, could attack, could attack the people, being used by Claudius. No, I mean what I'm, the point I'm trying to do is that there must be this symbolic boundary between that world and our world. Whenever this boundary is crossed somehow by the elephants physically crossing the precincts or by the gladiators being used in the political arena in a very delicate point, which is the center of the power, which is the city of Rome. Well, this is where the scandal comes, not when people actually die. Other questions? It's uh, almost time. But Okay, I had another agenda of things to say. But I'm happy that we went uh, about uh, things that you wanted to say. I'll see you on Monday. Thank you.